The Tilt. Those days when mum's hangover was a dark kitchen, sat at the table, head in her hands like a full bowl. I'd slip out of the house and come here, this bookshop on Luke Street. In here, I could shut the world with a door and be walled in by hardbacks, boxes of dead leaves, paperbacks neat as piano keys. And here, it was quiet, floorboards tense as a frozen lake, the book in my chest that opened and closed. And I'd kneel to a low shelf, choose at random, and break open a loaf of paper. It didn't matter that I couldn't afford it, or that soon the owner would make me leave, or that I was only four and couldn't read. The smell of an old book is a memory of trees. A boy can tilt into it, the way a drunk tilts her glass, and lean back, emptied. Hello and welcome to episode 10 Oh, we, we're in double figures now. We're in double figures. Oh, very nice. Episodio 10. Indeed. Oh, Spanish. Oh, grand. Uh, at least uh, the DS part was. I don't think episode is episodio. <laughs> I just, <laughs> well, just said it with e- confidence. It's either really correct or we've offended a lot of people. Episodio 10. And we've just offended them further. <laughs> nice one. <laughs> we've decided to embrace the offensiveness. Oh, grand. Brilliant. It was Mexican. It was, it was oh. authentic Mexican. Oh. <laughs> God. Uh I <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode ten of Two Minute Stories. And you've hello. just you've just heard you've just heard uh the tilt from Mark Pajak. Mark, what persuaded you, what made you write that piece? What was it about? What were you aiming for? What were you doing, Mark? Uh God, so many questions so quickly. I know. That's my uh, style. It was a commission. It was a commission mm-hmm. about two years ago, uh from uh, Caroline Duffy asked uh, a bunch of poets to write mm. about about bookshops, mm. and it was to go into an, th- an anthology celebrating uh, bookshops and, and to be sold in independent bookshops and to really support them. And uh, it's one of those dream commissions when, mm. when you're a writer because you're like, oh, but of course I love bookshops; it's fantastic. And then yeah. you go away and you spend three months in front of a blank screen crying. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then I, I got to... But with a paycheck at the end of it. Well, <laughs> well you had to produce something. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't know how I was going to do it because I had lots yeah. of different ideas. And then a, a friend told me their experience of uh, of, uh, of a bookshop and I was able to connect their experience. You with just another. go around stealing your friend's experiences, don't you? Ooh, yeah. <laughs> just one of those making things. money off them as poems. I, sort of, I have to say that every time I read that poem as well because yeah. sometimes I read that at readings yeah. that my mum is at yeah. and you know because because there's an abusive parent in it it, yeah. it can lead to some very awkward questions what? afterwards um, Mark 
Well, my mum's fine with hearing it. It's, she's the one who gets the awkward questions after. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> so I always have to give a disclaimer. That's not my mum, by the way. Yeah. Um, my mum liked to drink, but not that much. <laughs> uh, so, I was yeah. going to say, it didn't, it didn't seem like you, but... No, no, no. But you know, you never know. You, well, you never know. <laughs> you never know. Are you going to steal my uh, my Mark Hermode penis story and, and turn that into a uh, into a poem? No, that's all you, darling. That's you can me. keep that one. That's fine. I would never, We've... I would never steal that from you. <laughs> Uh, that won't make any sense to you, but it's, it's a cracking story. It's a cracking story. <laughs> I'll listen to it anyway. Just in case that goes in the show, that that was directed to one of our guests who is sitting here listening to the mm-hmm. intro. Just in case we decide that that was gold and has to stay in. <laughs> Unless I can't edit your laughter out, uh, okay, mm. Mark Pajak. Um, who have we got on the show today, Mark? Well, uh, today we have uh, Michelle Green, uh, who is a, a British Canadian writer living in Manchester, because this is the place to live. It's really. a place to be, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, she has a poetry chat book with uh, Crocus Books, Knee High Affairs, which is a fantastic title, mm. um, and, uh, and and a critically acclaimed um, short story collection with Comma Press, which is Jabel Mara, uh, loosely drawn from her own experience as an aid worker in Defour. Um, and yeah, and and we're going to be hearing a bit about that. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit about. I shall mm. talk a little bit uh, about that with Michelle in in our interview. Mm. Um, and uh, and I want to read the collection very badly. Mm-hmm. Going yeah. out to becoming a customer after the show. Yeah, um, uh, it's it's a really it's a, it's a it's it's one of those rare interviews that you get where you 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 learn. You hear the story about the book before you've read it, mm. and you're just like, "God, I've got to sink my teeth into that book," you know. Yeah. Um, and anybody who hears this who hasn't gone out and read Jabal Mara will do that, do so. And that's 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 going to be the the case with with Sean Hewitt. So Sean Hewitt is our other guest today. Mm. And uh, who is to, Sean Hewitt, Mark? Just tell to us tell about you a little Hewitt. bit about Sean. Uh, Sean uh, read English at the University of Cambridge. Uh, where he received many scholarships yeah. uh, and twice received the Charity Reeves Prize in English. Uh, in 2014, he was awarded an Arts Council uh, England funding for a series of poems and in 2015 was selected as one of the Poetry Trust's Aldebra 8. It was the final Aldebra 8 programme that, that Sean was on. What is the Aldebra 8 programme? Um, well, it's where eight poets are selected uh, to go to the Oldborough Poetry Festival and, uh. and they can participate in workshops and then they go to readings and, it, and it's about um, about developing their work. It's a development programme and we've had a lot of, okay. of really promising voices and Sean is one prominent among them. So they're not a terrorist cell? Uh, no. <laughs> I mean, I figured, the they probably, <laughs> figured they probably weren't. <laughs> in Oldborough, of all places. I mean, you know. Okay, um, could have been. Uh, yeah, and 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 Sean has read uh, the Literature Festival, the Dur- Durham Book Festival, uh, the Oldborough Poetry Festival. He's taught creative writing at Liverpool John Moores University. He's a fiction reviewer for the Irish Times, and uh, a Leverhulme Research Fellow at Trinity College Dublin. His first pamphlet, Lantern, mm. which has just come out, um, uh, and yeah, and, and which was supported by a Northern Writers Award in 2016. Oh, it's just out, is it? It's, ju- it's only just, just out. come out. Only well, just come out. fancy that. Mm-hmm. What a good idea it was getting him on the show. Well yeah. done. Well done, Mark. Well, yeah. I've, 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 ever since I... I um, Sean also run the, the Resurgence Prize in 2017 is with his poem, Ilex. Mm. Uh, and ever since I read that, I've just... Yeah, I've just really 
been a huge fan of Sean's work, so I was really excited to get him in today. All right. So what are we what are we going to learn during this show, Mark? What is this show going to teach us? There was we were talking about. No, shut up, Chris. I just asked you. You tell me. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, for once, I didn't have to tell you. Shut up. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. Sorry. All right. All right. <laughs> um, so today, I think today's a lot about method. Mm. We're going to talk a lot about method um, and, and get an insight about the stories behind stories, which I really think, which we haven't, we, we've touched on a lot of times, talked about the, the ideas behind poems and the, the making of them. But there's mm. going to be a lot of, if anybody's a, a writer out there, I think they're going to get a lot of insight on advice on this episode. Mm. I certainly did. Anyway. Well, I'm glad we could help you. Mm-hmm. It's well, all about you, isn't it, Mark? Surely, isn't that the point of these? Things? I think you and uh, you and Sean, you will be talking to Sean, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, and something that's going to come up is this idea of uh, of this movement from darkness into light, mm. which um, obviously that goes with his his pamphlet's title, Lantern. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a, I mean, obviously that's an evocative powerful idea moving yeah. from darkness into light it, it makes sense in the in story structure terms mm. said the narratologist yeah <laughs> uh, uh, am i a narratologist oh uh, yeah is that uh, a screw term? It. okay it is a term is i'm term. not sure i am one okay. i'm doing narrative structure i'm saying narratologist mm-hmm. um uh yeah this idea that the that in the first half of a story it is said your character is meant to be in the dark Mm. And something occurs at the at the midpoint, a kind of dawning realization, perhaps, so that in the second half of your story, your character is in the light. Mm-hmm. You know, in the first half, they're not sure what's going on. They're not sure what problem they're facing, or they're not sure how to how to beat their problem, what they have to do, what they have to confront. And at the midpoint, they start to become aware, and maybe we start to become aware. You often see this in 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 films. Something at the midpoint is just like. Oh, this is what the story is about. Oh, so it's going to go in this way. You know, the tables start to turn a little bit, and the character in the second half is is in the light. You know, they know what they have to do. They know what they have to confront, even whether they're successful or not in confronting it. Um, but I think that's I think that's going to come across in in um, my discussion with Michelle. Yeah, as well. I was just about to say because her piece deals with 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 a very dark character i don't want to give too much away i don't want to give it too much away but it it does a really interesting thing with with light yeah and undark yes yeah but um i don't know should we should we dive straight into it talk to michelle yeah do we start with michelle yeah we're gonna start with michelle okay well then let's hear hear from michelle all right here's michelle green undark on the shores of the great bear lake Undark runs his fingers through high arctic grass, bends to the northwesterly, and watches as they leave and leave, always. A long string of brief but passionate affairs, and Undark has stories, of course. Bobbed hair and glowing lips, luminous nights spent spinning to the sounds of the bright, hopeful twenties. It was they who kissed me, Undark insists, They who pulled my hands to their hair, who dipped fingertips into my mouth, smiled in the dark. I slept restless in their bones, couldn't help myself, Undark says, couldn't help my silver-white wives. 
Undark speaks with a slight American twang and won't talk about Japan, the fat man, the little boy. Thinks it unbecoming. He'd rather remember the miners and factory girls lit by the dawn and how grateful they were for possibility, for this new life. Even after the discard and decay, after their faces fell in and their legs buckled, teeth dropping like stones into the lake, they still took portraits with me, he says. Even then, as if he's proud. As if he sees only himself in those constellations, those tiny dark room holes, honeycombed bones on photographic paper, maps of the love that ate them. Hello, Michelle. Hello. Uh, so, uh, when did you uh, when did you write um, Undark? Um, I wrote Undark a few years ago. And um, it was for this interesting little rolling collaboration that um, that has been happening under the under the name Beautiful Dragons, the Beautiful Dragons um, Press, and the poet Rebecca Bilkow. Um, she's an editor as well. Um, she periodically um, puts out a shout about an idea she has for an anthology. That's all. Uh, poems that are connected by some type of theme. And Undark was written for one that was focused on the um, the periodic table of elements. Oh, so, really? Yeah, I chose Radium. Started reading yeah. about Radium. Um, the Great Bear Lake in, in um, Northwest Territories in Canada, um, it was a big source of, of Radium mining for the U.S., actually. Mm. And, of course, I think, um, I think there might be a... F- film coming out soon actually about the radium girls who worked in this factory painting the glow in the dark faces on watches and oh God, painting yeah. their lips and their teeth and yeah i've heard about something similar horrific horrific yeah yeah horrific um and and the the bosses knew about that um at the time they kept it quiet they knew it was dangerous Oof. um of course and uh <laughs> yeah oh humanity so oh humanity indeed and and i just um yeah, Un- Undark was their trade name for this glow-in-the-dark paint. Oh. And it just has the sound of <laughs> like a demonic character that is oh, coming yeah. for you. So um, you saw that and thought, I'm taking that word. Yeah, I did. And and that connection between commerce and war and um, mining and the people who are mining the uranium in, in Great Bear Lake was um, it's a lot of uh, local indigenous folk who... Mm. You know, um, anyone who's who's reading anything about Canada these days knows that um, there's still a, there's still a hell of a lot of uh, a colonial fallout um, and inequality happening yeah. there, and it's it's just in, I've, I'm always interested in in the ways that industry and commerce are are tied to um, are tied to so many other things, I guess. Mm, well, I was just about to ask if there was a particular sort of subject matter that that appeals to you. Um, but you mm. beat me to it. So yeah, just, just I'm, I am interested in that, and I'm I'm interested in the ways that work like shapes our bodies in different ways, mm. physically shapes our bodies, and how how that's passed on, and and how it's mm. visible. Um, how does it, Michelle? How does it shape us? Well, 
I have, I have always had the hands of like a 90 year old washerwoman. Like, <laughs> like when I was 12, my hands were as wrinkly as they are today. I'm like, mm. why is that? I'm not really sure. I have my dad's hands. I have mm. these, you know, they're like strong and kind of stubby fingered and I'm, I can do stuff with them. Um, the skin has always been like rough as hell <laughs> from the age of four. Um, <laughs> And I, where did I get that? I don't know, but I know I've I've come from a long line of people who've done um, different kinds of manual work and um, um, who've had access to different kinds of things, have not had access to different kinds of things, and I, I it does write itself on your body. It's mm. um, you know now as a writer, and my my upper back is is starting to write itself onto the top of my spine, and yeah. Um, yeah, I'm just I'm just curious about that. The ways that it shows up physically, it's uh, part of our environmental shaping. I think you know. Yeah. Well, yeah. For writers, it's, everyone's got a bad back. That's right. <laughs> that's it. Right. Exactly. The, the writer's injury. Oh my god. <laughs> and underdeveloped shoulders. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah, and, and it's that, and I'm interested in that, and I'm very interested in maps. My lifelong mm. obsession is is with maps. Yeah. So how does that figure when you're when you're writing a piece? Do you go to maps for inspiration? Um, well, I do. Mm. Um, and when I say maps, I think about maps in the sense that maps are very biased documents. They are stories. They are um, narratives. Um, someone has chosen what is visible and what's not visible. And that mm. is that's powerful. And it's that is interesting to me. That's what I'm interested in. Um, so, like your OS maps that that they have in the UK are incredible. I, there's nothing like that in Canada that you can buy at a gas station that has here's an ancient well, mm. <laughs> you know, like here's a stone. We're not sure how old it is. It's in a field, you know, next to the the A23. Mm. That really interests me. Um, there's that is important, you know, that that like physical marking of the history of this land is something that's obviously held dear. It's on it's on mm. the maps, you know, and. Um, I'm interested in in artist maps and maps of memory and maps mm. of experience and yeah I think I th just think they're really rich. Do you have quite a zoomed out view then as a writer? Do you like looking at uh, you know systems? I mean, yes, I'm interested in that, but as a writer, I can only zoom in. Like I don't know. Every time I've attempted to 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 stand back and have a kind of a zoomed out view of a story or a narrative, it's always shockingly bad <laughs> and I can't show anyone. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, um, I write poetry and I write, I write short stories and sometimes write for performance, but it's all very um, small. And the way that I know how to do that writing is, is by focusing in and it's about detail and it's about um, acknowledging that there are going to be, um, absences and things will will you know things will leak out into the cracks and I and I, I I don't want to try and um I don't want to try and guard against that I I feel like that's mm. part of what that's part of what really good short fiction does is it it, yeah. it, it, it is very honest and I'm not I'm not going to uh, claim any kind of totality um I have no idea how novelists write novels I don't I enjoy reading them but <laughs> total mystery panicking for a couple of years in front of a laptop yeah is that it yeah. <laughs> well yeah. that that's an interesting an interesting topic though like what what good short fiction does i 
teach prose classes sometimes and I try to tell my students what good short fiction does. Um, tell me, what, what does good short fiction oh do, God. Michelle? Well, what it does for me is it really, it really grabs me. Like physically, <laughs> I feel it in my body. It's, um, it's, it's something that uh, feels visceral often. Mm. Um, I really like, for example, I, I really like the, um, the Canadian writer Mark Anthony Jarman. I think his short fiction is incredible. Um, and he does, he's very, very good at um, using words to create physical experiences um he and he, he was weirdly kind of ignored for a long time in canada i think because he didn't fit into the whatever the dominant thing was mm-hmm. um he was doing something else you know yeah. uh, he was he was as writing interesting about people usually are well that's it right and he's now i think starting to get recognized as mm. this absolutely phenomenal writer that he is um but yeah he writes about the fuck-ups he writes about the people who've made a really bad decision the people who are dealing with um their cowardice their regret their addiction their their fear their you know and i guess that's that's the interesting stuff to me Um, and and fear as well as a as a joyous thing not only as a you know that doesn't have to be a um despairing thing but that sort of elevated Yeah. Visceral thing, and that, so that's the short fiction I love. Yeah, is it so? That must be something that you try to get into your short fiction as well. Yeah, I do. Does, I do. Does that come through your selection of subject matter, or your structuring of story, or a little bit of both? Hmm, that's a good question. I think um, I'm quite impulsive about how I choose subject matter. I I need to. I sort of follow my obsessions. Hmm. I follow where the thing that I can't let go of, the thing that my mind is like you know, turning over and over and over. Yeah. Um, so I'm not very strategic about it. Well, that's a good strategy, I think. <laughs> following, yeah. following, what, following your curiosity. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, right? Exactly. Mm. Uh, yeah, following curiosity. Yeah. And then, I mean... Because there must be something there to make you curious. And Exactly, go. right? And the, the questions are where the interesting things lie. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then in terms of structural work, I mean, I, I try to... I try to take out as much as I can without the story collapsing. Yeah, but uh, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. I think that's um, that concision is something that I think is is particularly crucial to short fiction, both in a, in a stylistic yeah. sense and in a and in a narrative sense. If you can get rid of it, get rid of it. Yeah, that's it, right? Yeah. Um, and I I feel like um, I mean this is my own bias because of my own focus as a writer, obviously, but. And there's there's a kinship between poetry and short fiction. Sure, yeah. That I really see. It's very visible. Yeah. Um, you know, they're they're not the same. They do different things. Mm. They work in different ways. But mm. there's a definite definite kinship there. That's yeah. Really interesting. They're very compressed, very diluted. Yeah, that's it. And the focus, um, and I I guess um, that really appeals to me because I think focusing in on detail is. Mm is uh, something I can get a handle on. I, yeah. I'm not, I really admire writers that are able to um, construct a huge sweeping narrative. Mm. Um, but I've got no idea how that works yeah. functionally. Like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm doing my, my PhD in that, basically. I'm doing my PhD in, in uh, narrative structure. Yeah, okay. Particularly narrative structure in crime cinema. I'm, I'm, a, I'm doing a, a screenplay for my, my thesis. Um, but I, I, I'm doing a, 
a doctorate in narrative structure because I didn't have the faintest idea how to do it. It's the the thing I understand least. That's how to awesome. Construct story. Because like, okay, I'd better go and understand how to do this at a really high level because all these stories of mine, all these things I'm writing, have no story at all, and they're just I love that. detail. And I like to just follow language, like follow the rhythm of language. Yeah, yeah. In 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 a kind of verging on prose poetry kind of a way, and just yeah. flow where language and feel takes me. Yeah. And uh, and then I have to remind myself. Oh, inciting incident, a goal, obstacle, all that stuff. You know. Yes, that's. I love that you just went straight for the thing that you didn't know and the thing that you were a bit you know, uh, about. Yes, because exactly. I really good. <laughs> had to do something about it. You know. Yeah, I um, I do I do wonder. Um, I th- I think that part of what I understand about short fiction and and that kind of approach, that visceral approach, definitely comes from having um, initially um, been working as an actor mm. and. Um, Understanding scripts in 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 so far as uh, collaboration mm. and uh, something that I would need to find physically that I would need to find in my body mm. to understand this person who is this person what is happening to them um, what are the things pushing back against them you know and that that's found itself into my prose I think that sort of like physical approach where where does it live in the body where is fear where is where is Anxiety. Where is where is excitement? Where are those things in the body? And mm. um, yeah, it's it's something that I'm more and more obsessed with. I think, and I've started um, as I'm I'm writing about Hailing Island, and it's a oh, but like bucket and spade um, uh, holiday destination in the sixties and seventies, and um, in off Portsmouth, right? That's right, yeah. off the south coast, right near Portsmouth, mm. and, um, and a little place. Um, and uh, and a really place with a very interesting history. And um, um, there's a a guy there who's who's just passed away actually, who is absolutely famous on the island as the Lion Man. Uh, he <laughs> ran away to join the circus. He holds some sort of record for the you know amount of time lying on a bed of nails. He, oh, my wow. parents were like, yeah, he used to bring the bed of nails to the pub and lie down on it, and everyone <laughs> would give him some money. Like, that's what Ray did, you know. And um, of course, there's, why, why right, not? and that there's something about, I don't know, it's the body. It keeps coming back to the body and yeah. and how people how people make make their way with that. I think. Well, something that I'm very um, interested to talk to you about is. Um, is your time in Darfur? Yeah. Um, so you uh, you wrote a highly acclaimed short story collection called uh, Jebel Mara. Yeah, that's Am right. Pronouncing that all right. You are. You are. Uh, based on you, your time as an aid worker in Darfur, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I have many questions. Um, <laughs> what What made you go there? So I was um, I was working for um, an aid agency in in the UK who works in the UK as well as world, worldwide, um, doing admin. That's how I paid my rent. I have done a ton of office jobs. Um, and uh, in 2004, um, the uh, civil war in uh, Darfur erupted. Um, and this aid agency, um, they, they, their focus is on water and sanitation. Um, they, they were immediately trying to uh, focus on um, drilling boreholes for the millions of displaced people, um, and they wanted someone who was already part of the bureaucratic system of that organization um, to be able to very quickly go and just deal with getting people contracts, hiring staff. Um, and so I didn't really think too much about it. I applied for that, and um, 
I thought I I can go and do this thing. And there's a huge amount of people who are suffering the kind of injustice I I can't imagine. And um, if I can do something useful, then I'm going to do a useful thing. So, um, yeah, so that's what I did. I I went and I ended up working um, in West Darfur, right near the border with Chad um, in uh, in Sudan, dealing with the incredibly complex bureaucratic system there I was the mm. paperwork person which is not the kind of um, thing that people think of when you say aid worker and I have mm. since had a lot of people say to me I want to become an aid worker I'm doing a degree in international development and I'm like why don't you get an engineering degree <laughs> yeah why don't you become a nurse mm. like or learn a language or learn like la- yeah, yeah that's it right so it's weird it's this weird profession where People give you credit for things that you haven't done and it's very uncomfortable um, and it's a very weird environment. And uh, I I was there for six months. Um, Most of the people that I worked with were um, Sudanese uh, engineers and and sanitation experts and and many of those were from Darfur, although there were people from from other parts of Sudan as well. Um, And, yeah, one of the women I worked with said... um, when you go home, you have to tell people about this. Mm. So I did, for ages, I didn't know how to do that. I'm like, yeah. the world doesn't need an, another aid worker memoir. Um, I'm, you know, I avoided it and avoided it. And then um, and then it was connecting with Raw Page, um, who's, yeah, my wonderful um, editor at, at Karma Press. He he was the, the one who pushed me. He's like, what about, I think this is short fiction. Is this, is this a collection of linked stories and... and mm. Yeah, it emerged really slowly. It took a long time to write. Yeah. How did you connect with Ra? Um, through a, an event I was reading at in Fallowfield that I think Zoe Lambert had put on. And the power went out and I ended up reading with a flashlight, something ridiculous. <laughs> anyway, he was there and we, we, I'd been aware of him but had not met before. Yeah. Um, and I read something I'd been, I'd been working on about, um, yeah, connected to um, my time there in Darfur. Mm. And um, he's really, you know, he's someone who has an international focus and, and also has a political focus as an editor and a publisher. I mean, that's mm. something that is really central to what Karma does. And yeah, that's kind of where our conversation started. Yeah. I'm, you said in a very uh, almost blasé, matter-of-fact kind of way, well, there was this job opportunity in Darfur and I just decided to go. But that's a very big decision to make volunteering to go into a war zone yeah it is really isn't it yeah um i was like so i was 27 i don't know if (laughs) i had um i'd i'd accumulated less um self-consciousness i also didn't think i was going to be offered the job Mm. so actually when i was offered an interview i assumed that i wouldn't get it so i interviewed them instead (laughs) (laughs) that's quite a good ask them all about it and apparently um, that was like that it. was fine. And interestingly, one of the things that they asked me about was how do you think you'll deal with being contained for large periods of time? Because there's curfews. You can't mm. walk around. Mm. Um, you know, what, what's that going to be like? And um, and I said, well, I'm a writer. So, you know, I'm, I, I'm really, you know, I'm, I'm happy with that. So they were like, oh, interesting, interesting. OK, good, good, good. Yeah. Like, yeah so yeah. how did you feel when they offered it to you? Um. I was quite shocked. I mean, it's hard to remember. It's really hard to remember that point because going and working in Darfur changed everything mm. for me. 
um, as a person and as a writer. And I think that one, one of the people that I worked with who had been doing emergency aid work for a very long time, so she's the person two days after the tsunami who is, who is immediately there to try and help support the local agencies, you know, and then she's gone. And she said, um, people who do this work are, are damaged somehow. You know, we've why otherwise you wouldn't do it. You wouldn't do it. You know, I had I had, was in a relationship at the time, and she said you you left someone to come here, and I thought, oh yeah, that's an interesting <laughs> question. Yes, I did. Yeah. Um. And uh, I think that there's something about the kind of um, connecting with personal damage, personal trauma, and and yeah. and our own past histories that. That is very, um, that's resonant and um, it's something that drives me. Um, it's something that connects me to other people. And it's a survival strategy as well, that that trying to um, be part of, in whatever tiny way, um, trying to alleviate something just in, in the smallest way possible. Um, it, it just feels, it's a survival strategy for me, absolutely. Mm. Like, Yeah. And it's something that drives a lot of writing for me as well. That's, um, I don't know about, uh, all the, all the, all the damage that's ever happened in my family has been to do with holding things in mm. and, uh, being very, uh, closed, being very quiet mm. and not saying the thing and saying the thing has become the thing that I need to do. Um, it's mm. either that or it will eat me, you know. Yeah. And is that the change that you were talking about? You said that being in Darfur changed everything. Yeah, it did. Um, yeah, it was um, the only time in my life that I have never been living in the past or in the future mm. because it would it was dangerous to live in the past or the future when you were there you needed to be present. And that's an incredibly intense experience. Like I, you know, now I live in the past and the future all the time. Um, now, uh, time works really differently for me. I've just finished reading this, this really interesting book by a guy called Steve Taylor called making time, who I think works in Manchester mm. about how time operates differently depending on how we're relating to it. And he talked about experiences like that where um, your life is in danger or your adrenaline is constantly going, your fight or flight system is just pumping all the time, mm. that, that that anchors you in the present um, as a survival mechanism. Um, but you can't sustain that um, full time you just can't so for six months I did that I came back to the UK and then I uh, developed ME very quickly my body just said we're done mm. <laughs> so that's physically things have changed my that's one of the ways my my job wrote itself onto my body was um was it it, it just wore it down I mean you you can't you can't live in a in a 16 hour a day constant adrenaline situation and uh come out of it the same way that you did going in yeah. and you know and i say that is i was one of the most pampered people in janina in west darfur at that time because you know i'm a white person working for an aid agency so i had safe water to drink mm. i had food i was protected 
I was driven everywhere. You know, my experience is nothing compared to folk who are living locally. Mm. Um, and it, it does, you know, I feel like I got a tiny insight, like a tiny, tiny taste of uh, that, that very um, violent and abrupt way that that fear writes itself onto your body, that, that, um, that dislocation can write itself into your body. And mm. Yeah, it's really, it's really informed how I think about writing and becoming disabled has really informed that as well, you know. How much of a how much of a gap was there between when you came when you came back and writing your collection? Um, so the collection was published in twenty fifteen. I was in Darfur in two thousand and five. I started writing it in twenty seventeen. So it took me eight years. Mm. <laughs> it took a very long time, um, and. Part of that was because it's difficult to write about. Part of it was it's it was a book. <laughs> it takes a long time yeah. uh, sometimes to write yeah. a book. Um, uh, but also, um, I wanted to find the 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 characters, the the fictional people um, that I that I wrote um, stories for uh, very carefully mm. and with real consciousness about who I am and my position. And and how I'm writing, mm. um, and and how I want that that to that to gel together. So, um, one of the people I spoke with um, a while ago, actually doing an event um, connected with the um, Humanitarian Research Institute, um, she said, uh, "Before I read your book, I was really nervous because I was worried that it was going to be like." And she made this face, like, mm. and um, and I know what she meant. She's like. I was really worried it was going to be racist. It was going to be a white person who went to Africa yeah. and is writing and here's their bleeding heart. Mm. And um, that was it. Like that was, that was the thing that um, I have my eye on the whole time I was writing. I'm like, if I write this, if I fuck it up, I deserve every criticism. Mm. I need to do my absolute best. I need to do this with integrity as yeah. as as well as I'm able to, you know. So it took eight years. It took a long time, and I'm a slow writer as well. What did it What did it do to you when you you'd been through that process? You'd plumbed all your memories. You'd shaped them and formed them into something structured, and then released them to the world. How did that How did that feel? How did that affect you? It wasn't a good feeling, actually. It's funny. I I thought it'd be really cathartic, but I just felt awful for two years afterwards. I was mm. like, oh my god. What have I done? <laughs> Why was that? Do you um, think? I think because it was just really hard. It was it was hard to write, and um, yeah, I I needed to let I needed to disconnect. I mean, writing about that that experience through fiction was was really was a really useful tool. Um, there's things that that you can do in fiction that are that are not what happens in in our non-fiction world. Um, mm. And I, I'm really interested in that. And I'm interested in transformation as well. So rather than just like, bam, here's something horrific, transformation, right? Like movement. Fiction's really good at that. Yeah. Um, and so while I was writing, I was quite, you know, I was in, I was involved with that. Um, and then the book came out and I had to figure out how to unhook all of it, all the bits of those stories yeah. from me. And it, it, yeah, it took a while. 
Thank goodness it's done. (laughs) (laughs) Although I seem to be writing a coda story now about it. Oh, really? So it's come back anyway, but very different, yeah. Well, so what are you doing next? Let's finish up with that. Um, So right now I'm I'm, uh, I'm gearing up to uh, write another collection of short stories and this time all focused on Hailing Island. Ah, yes. And I want them to be um, an audio digital map of stories. Mm. So they're going to exist um, online. We're also going to be making a physical something. Um, but I'm working with a digital artist, um, Maya Chowdhury, who's also a very, very good poet um, and um, an installation artist. And um, and then Caro um, C, who is a wonderful um, experimental musician and also a very good sound engineer. So mm. I want people to have different access points. So listening, um, we were chatting about audiobooks earlier. Yeah. I'm really interested in that type of reading. Um, it's a different way of receiving things. Um, mm. Yeah, and and maps, layers and layers of maps. So I've started like painting over hailing and yeah. writing little memories and and you know borrowed things that I've been given onto that map. Um, so it's something that we're going to, um, yeah, we're going to be we're going to be creating over the next couple of years, I think, and try and figure out uh, how we can make a map of maps that holds a short story collection. Yeah. That sounds Good quite project. a. <laughs> Good as luck. I say, I'm like shit. <laughs> ah, you can. <laughs> you'll be fine. Yeah, you'll be fine. <laughs> All right. Well, well. Uh, thanks very much for coming in, Michelle. And I have to All go right. and get your collection now. Thank you so much for having me. It's been lovely chatting with you. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. That was Chris talking to Michelle Green, and this is Sean Hewitt. Evening poem. First, the clatter iron blackbird, its fanatical shuddering in the magnolia. Dusk, and the garden is reassembling, calling its sparrows home. And what a voice racket under the orcuba, doors closing too, and each sparrow. An iron filing sweeping the field lines of the garden. I sit out in the last warmth and watch it all come to rest. The light falling. The thrushes settling in the sycamores at the far end of the lawn. How each tree lowers itself under a new weight. And I hold out for a while for everything to darken, for the birds to stop singing, as though I am teaching myself again to bear it. Hello, Sean. Hello, Mark. Hello. Thank you so much for coming in today. Not a problem. And that that's just such a it's it's such a goosebump poem that poem and it's so slow and just really really settles beautifully um i i was i was wondering did this actually take place is this a an experience you had or is it uh, an imagining um uh in a way yes and no um i did i was writing notes in the garden at dusk so so i suppose it did kind of take place in that sense but i think actually this poem probably took the longest to write out of all the poems because um I wrote it much longer and then I wrote it much shorter and then I heard this um kind of more 
not a nursery rhymey ending, but I, I, I was reading some uh, Louise Gluck hmm. poems, and she has a poem. Um, I've forgotten the titles of it now, but it's uh, I think it's called All Hallows or something like that. Um, and it ends with this really uh, creepy image of uh, of a woman calling out of the window uh, and the soul creeps out of the tree is the last line. Uh, and I was kind of thinking of that idea like, uh, of, of something kind of unsettling about um, dusk or evening. And I, and I wrote a poem that wasn't quite this. Um, and then I wrote this one. So I think it is, in a way, it's an imagining... Um, it's an imagined idea. I, I, it wasn't a purposefully set mm. sort of meditative exercise that I was doing, uh, although it's kind of that's how it comes through oh, well, in, like, in the poem. So, how many drafts did this go through? Oh, um, a lot, probably ten or so. Oh wow! Because um, okay. it's it's come a long way from unsettling, if anything. Yeah, yeah. I mean. Uh, it had loads of different things in. I mean, uh, originally it wasn't about the garden. So so this is actually uh, the garden where I lived. Um, but there was a part behind the garden and um, most of the poem originally was uh, set in the in the um, part behind the garden. And there used to be kind of this guy that would cycle around every, every night um, with one of those like wind up torches. Mm. And I was kind of writing a poem about him. Uh, and about that sort of eeriness of of a of a park at night, an empty park, um, and then it just became this. And uh, yeah, I suppose it isn't an, an unsettling poem anymore. You're right. Uh, I wonder where that went. Oh, I'm I, I'm I'm not I'm not complaining in the, the no, slightest. No, no, though, no, no. no, no. Um, There's just this calling its sparrows home, and this idea of reassembling, hmm. and and, and there, there's the and just that. That last, last, as I, I am teaching myself, as though I am teaching myself again to bear it. There is something so, so home-like in this. Mm. There, there is a, a stillness that I absolutely adore because it's not. You get a lot of poems that that have that sort of punchline, whack, mm. twist mm. ending sort of thing, mm-hmm. and this one isn't. It, it's not. It, it's all of its power doesn't come from something shocking. Mm-hmm. It's just incredibly well observed and just really very stunningly, mm. very very you know beautiful in that way. I think um, that's that came much later in the draft. So yeah. I, I had had. Um, I think there's always that temptation in a poem to try and lift it somewhere, grand, mm. or, or to to elevate into something bigger, or if even to um, to create kind of a crescendo moment. Mm. And I, and I think. In the end, I realized that was what was going wrong with the end of the poem. I was trying to invent this crescendo that was perhaps untruthful. And sometimes I think it's okay to do um, uh, to do the opposite of a crescendo, to kind of turn it down mm-hmm. um, and reflect on something perhaps mundane or small mm-hmm. um, and, and not to attempt to... Uh, to, to to be grand mm. uh, and i think that was kind of the lesson that this poem taught me that it's okay to uh to fail in a way uh to, to allow the poem just to sit uh without something that seemed to me to be a conclusive or a grand ending that's really interesting to describe it as a a, a failing in a way mm. like it's i know a lot of writers I, I, I was talking to someone recently and they were talking about how every draft is a, a failing towards success. Mm-hmm. Would you would you agree with that? It's like you you know you have to bear 
the drafting process almost. Yeah, and and I think you always have this idea of a um a a, a better poem than the one that you end up writing. Mm. And I think uh, especially for me it tends to be uh, my idea of the uh, of a of a great poem that I kind of I'm on the cusp of all the time and I'm never quite writing is is this poem that can lift us somewhere and can go somewhere uh, and go from one mundane thing into something grand or something bigger like mm. here's the garden and here's what it means about life or here's mm. the garden and here's what it means about love um and and so the poem always fails because i i, I never get that grand ending mm-hmm. um and in some places i think that's okay and and in fact as you said like that struggle towards failure is part of what makes you realize the complexities or or, or the difficulties of a poem that means that it can never get to this grand ending Mm. because there isn't a perfect grand ending because it's more complicated than that or it's more uh uh subtlety yeah i I think you have to failing helps you to be subtle yeah i think Uh, and, and if you if you succeeded or if you thought you'd succeeded in saying something grand your poem is probably falling flat yeah yeah no i i know a lot of um i've read a lot of poems usually my own like early juvenilia sort of stuff i was like oh this is incredible it's going to revolutionize and then looking back on it after years of going oh my god what was i doing there and i think though it takes you a while to realize that i mean Mm -hmm. i'm sure i can't remember a specific example but i i know even poems that i've written recently i've i've gone towards a grand thing and i'm like yes i've got it i've cracked it um and then you read it back in three weeks and you're so embarrassed by by the fact that you ever sent that to someone or yeah. like, oh God, like how it's so, um, uh, there's a sense of kind of like this teenage um, uh, lack of um, self-awareness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's what you get when you're, when you're in the, in the mood of writing a poem, you kind of, even though it's often not a, a nice thing to do, you're, you're in this state where, suddenly I can say something. Suddenly I, I'm in this state where, oh, this might actually do something. And you're filled with an excitement of where the poem might go. Uh, and it only ta- I think it takes some reflection looking back mm-hmm. that that was um, an energetic state that you were in mm-hmm. that's perhaps not conducive to writing the best poem. And that's where redrafting comes in, I think. You know, it's 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 actual real pleasure to talk to you. It's so encouraging to know that I'm not the only one who does that. For God's sake, <laughs> you know, I think a lot of people do. They they kind of do. They start off with the first draft and they come back and they think it's rubbish and they find that so disheartening. Mm-hmm. I know I do. Yeah. Um, and you, do, it, it takes a lot of it takes conversations like this with people who, yeah. who who are doing it constantly and everything to know that actually, yeah, it's necessary. Yeah, and I've actually got in the habit now, which I never used to do, of saving all of my drafts, mm. if only to remind myself how terrible the poems were to begin with. And that's I think that's really, really um, nice because you always think you've lost the neck of a poem mm-hmm. uh, uh, and you'll never write anything good again. And it's because you forget the work that went into mm. one. So you think, ah, oh, I wrote Evening Poem and it just came like this. And now I'm in this fallen state. Uh, you know, this was my Eden and now I, now I can't get back there. And uh, and the fact is that you were never there. Yeah. Uh, and like we were saying before, the the difficulty that goes into writing the poem is what makes it good. So the only thing you can do is persist. 
Mm. Um, and like there are always those poems that will never go anywhere, I mm. think. Uh, and sometimes I end up reconstituting those into new poems yeah. along the way. Um, yeah, yeah. I think it's it's okay to accept the one that this poem in this form doesn't work, mm. but there might be two or three starting lines for another poem in there, or there might be an idea that or something might have to happen in your life, or you might have to realise something before that poem can become halfway decent. So this is this is part of um, your new pamphlet that's just come out of Lantern. Mm-hmm. So how long did the, the, the pamphlet altogether take? Has this been over many years? or? Um, yeah. I mean, I was never writing it as a pamphlet. I was never writing any of these poems as... Um, a whole piece of work. Mm. I was doing them individually. And uh, so when I put together Lam- uh, Lantern, I put together a series of poems that I had that seemed to create a narrative. Mm-hmm. And that was quite important to me, that the idea that you might start somewhere and go somewhere through a pamphlet. Uh, I, I actually think that's what's nice about the pamphlet form. It's kind of small enough to hold mm. one narrative, um, even in a single sitting, perhaps. Um, I suppose the earliest poem in here is probably from mm, 2015 or so, Mm -hmm. maybe 2014. Uh, So I suppose you could say it was four or five years work. Mm. But then I suppose that's also disingenuous because um, a lot of the poems that I wrote in that time are not in here uh, and will never be seen <laughs> um, so i suppose uh yeah this is uh the product of five years mm-hmm. uh, but it's not all i did in the five years and uh it's kind of the the remnants of the of the wreckage of uh whatever i wrote in those five years well, I've, I've i've been reading london over the past the past week and and you know if i produced this in five years and if it was the only thing i produced in five years i'd be very happy with that i think <laughs> to be honest uh, um, so it, the, I, the the narrative that goes through this, uh, would you describe yourself as a, a nature poet? Because it, nature seems to be a prevalent theme. In this. I mean, it is a prevalent theme and it, it had never been something that I'd uh, thought of myself as being a nature poet. But I suppose um, in a way I'm looking for for something that I can observe closely and for whatever reason... Uh, the natural world world seems to um, be something that catches my attention. Mm. Uh, And I think in in a way that's perhaps why I'll never be a novelist because I can't give that sort of attention to a character Mm -hmm. or a storyline. It has to be a thing. I'm interested in kind of places and things rather than, not that I'm not interested in people, but (laughs) rather than uh, people, I, I don't have a knack for that. Mm-hmm. Uh so I suppose I'm a I'm a nature writer, although I have kind of this cringy reaction to the term, uh which I suppose in some ways sounds a bit fey to mm. me or a bit nice. Mm. And I'm constantly trying not to be that nature writer that I have in my head. Mm-hmm. Uh and, and I think there's always a strain as well when you write a book or a book of poems and uh obviously it's natural that um people go off and read it and they think about it in certain ways and nature writing is a is a handy category to to think about this book uh and this pamphlet in terms of 
and it and it does fit into that category it is a lot about the natural world but then i also i'm just like don't call me a nature mm. um because i don't want to be the person uh i th- i think as well in the wider world uh not just the poetry world when people think nature poetry they think of daffodils and of lovely poems about uh revelations and of spirituality and nature and whatever um and constantly i mean that might be the first poem i write might be a lovely poem about nature mm. but then i'm dissatisfied with that because i don't want it to be lovely mm. i want it to be something else yeah um so i'm constantly my redrafting is usually getting away from that mm-hmm. um so i suppose i'm a, a reluctant nature writer perhaps well i can i can completely appreciate what you mean because the, the pamphlet co- encompasses so many things i mean there's there's sex and there's love and there's all different kinds of of love in here there's mm-hmm. there's romantic love but also love of of um of children and and things like that mm-hmm. and, and there's also a, a religious mm-hmm. idea to it so i can completely see what you're saying mm-hmm. there's so much going on here and it would do it a, a sort of disservice I, I i'm i'm looking at the front cover and it has um this uh what, what, what plant is this this is a a stem of wild garlic mm-hmm. um yeah so th- this was uh the amazing illustrator clausie williams who um my editor martha knows and, and asked to draw this uh, piece of wild garlic it was one of the few things uh that i was actually sure about mm-hmm. uh with the collection i knew that the poem wild garlic would go at the end mm-hmm. and i wanted it a piece of wild garlic on the cover yeah um and I definitely didn't want a lantern on the cover or a light on the cover. Um, I, I wanted um, the piece of wild garlic, which I suppose in a way kind of acts as a, a torch. It kind of looks yeah. like a, a, a torch in, in a way. And you combine it with light beautifully in that mm. poem as well, which mm. I will let people go out and buy the pamphlet and then see how you do that. <laughs> but that is really, yeah, yeah, you can definitely see that. Where Where is Lantern pointing towards next? What is, what's the next project on that? The next project is a book, mm. um, and I suppose Lantern uh, has been very good to me in that sense. Or well, people have been very good to Lantern, which has been nice. Um, and what I want to do next is to expand this idea further, um, and it's going to take a change of direction. So mm. um, the book has uh, some translations from Old Irish, um, from the Mad Sweeney tales that mm. uh Heaney, um writes about it it's also got another middle section which i'm still working on um that will look at other things i promise um I, i'm quite conscious of, of attempting to look further um outwards uh, than i think this pamphlet does i think this pamphlet is quite personal and close closely held mm. uh set of poems um and it gave me the stepping stone where i can look at other things now Mm. it's quite nice i think that idea i mean you know yourself um once you've written a pamphlet there's a sense of right okay that's that's that bit done and now i can it's safely kind of stowed away and Mm. you can go on to something else then
Qué bien. I don't know why I did something borderline racist about Mexicans at the start of our intro, <laughs> by the way. And then you started backpedaling. And it I know. <laughs> it all went wrong. It's just because just I, I like speaking Spanish. That's all. <laughs> it was good. We got it out of the system. It was yeah, exactly. Fine. It was like a... Um, uh, well, what a fascinating show this has been. Yeah. Yeah. It has, and uh, I've I've been listening back to a few of these episodes now, and I'm very aware that I use the words fantastic and <laughs> wonderful quite a lot. So I'm going to try and describe this fantastic, wonderful episode <laughs> without using those adjectives. Um, I think maybe they should be the only adjectives that you're allowed. Uh, <laughs> uh, really? Yes. <laughs> well, I think that's fantastic. <laughs> that's what I think. Um, but yeah, no, it's been... What what two very different writers as well, mm. and two very different feels to the pieces as well. Mm. I thought there was such a a warmth and comfortableness to um to to Sean's piece in such a unbearably beautiful way, mm. uh, and and how incredibly unsettling was was Michelle's piece and I, I'm, yeah. I'm drawn to unsettling pieces as you know yeah so I was really um yeah well I think those are those are two fundamental aims of good writing I would say unbearable beauty mm-hmm. there you go if you can't get some unbearable beauty in there what the hell are you doing with a pen in your hand mm. basically and uh and and you surely you've got to aim to unsettle people mm, I mean if something to. isn't I mean you know things don't have to be um you know visceral or violent or dark to be unsettling let's say but you know if people remain settled mm. then again what what good has that done them well michelle was talking about writing on the body and the effects on the body and yeah the two effects of those two pieces were almost in opposites to each other so with 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 sean i was feeling i was sort of relaxed down into into all my muscles were being relaxed mm. and while i was hearing michelle's pieces they were all tensing up yeah and so it was almost a uh, my body was, was sort of hardening against it so those were the two two movements mm. that were going on one was a very soft effect and one was a very hard effect do you do you seek to unsettle no i just that's the way i yes, come across yes you do <laughs> No, I'm a lovely person, surely. I uh, mean, you're all right, but you, but you, you, thanks. you, no, you. I think you choose subject matter that's that's that is fairly unsettling. I would say. Yeah, you know? yeah, I think I do. Cats being hit by trains and uh, yeah, um, and, I, and bullets in mouths and whatnot. Yeah, I, I think that sort of stuff. Because I write every every day and mm. uh, it, trying to select subject matter when you're writing every day that mm. grabs you and keeps your interest has to have a little kick of adrenaline in it. I think all of those things have a little kick of adrenaline in it for me. When do you write? Uh, between 6 and 10, usually. In the morning? Yeah. Me too. Hmm. I've started doing that. It's great. Yeah. I mean, it's not because I'm, uh, I am like sleeping. Yeah, wow. <laughs> but, but it's very, it's very productive. Mm, yeah. I find it very productive. Oh, and you feel so good about that anything else you do the rest of the days is, is a bonus really. it, re- it reduces the constant panic that i have in the back of my head that i should be working i should be working i should be working you mm. know because you've done four hours the first thing the first thing you do during the day and you know when sean's talking about failure and how failure is a big part of of succeeding yeah and failing, massive you just give yourself so much more time and permission to fail because yeah. you're doing it every day yeah i i i think that's a very good approach the 
We were talking uh, in in the intro, and then you were talking with Sean about uh, about moving from darkness into light. Mm-hmm. And uh, I feel like with some of your stuff, you sort of you leave us in an unsettling moment. You put us in this unsettling moment, and then ju- and then just leave us there, and then just like deal with that. What do you make of this moment? So I go from light into darkness, as you trying to say. So I think like, it's just pure dark. It's just pure dark. <laughs> You're like 100% cacao. <laughs> this is the best review I've ever had. Thank you so much, Chris. Um, whereas I think yours is a bit, is more, much more tender, I think. That, do you know, that is I, the, that has become the key word that I'm, the key thing that I'm, I'm now looking for in my, in my writing. Mm. I've, I've often found with my, so a lot of my work is for screen. I've been a screenwriter for for quite a while. Few people would know it because it never makes it to screen. <laughs> but but that's a large part of being a screenwriter. It's a large it? part yeah. of being a screenwriter, and it's a, a large focus of my of my of my writing career. And, and now I'm weighted more about kind of I'm pretty evenly split between prose and screen and and filmmaking. Um, but in the past, a lot of my scripts have been too hard. You know, they'd been a bit too macho, a bit too masculine because I was in, in, influenced by the crime genre and film noir and kind of suspense and mystery. And I liked I liked suspense and, and tension. That was key. And uh, and the kind of threat of violence, I think, is, is I mean, we've talked about that a lot in, mm. in general storytelling terms, but in cinematic terms, that was something I was really interested in. And characters dealing with a very rough, violent, threatening world, something I was very interested in. But I found often that a lot of my scripts were just coming out just too, just in a way that didn't feel like me mm. and a bit too macho and a bit too rough and a bit too tough and violent. And more and more, as I've been kind of writing short fiction and finding my voice in that arena, it's been this idea of tenderness has been has been coming to define what I write. And whenever I write something and I get that response from a reader or from myself that this has a very tender feel to it, I just feel comfortable. I just feel like, yeah, I'm comfy with that. I want my writing to do that. Hmm. Um, it's, it's, I think it's the main thing that I'm trying to pursue now. But what, what are you yeah. going to read for us today? I am going to read a terribly tender piece. Uh, in the first show, episode one of Two Minute Stories, I, no, it wasn't episode one, it was episode two. It was episode two of Two Minute Stories. I read a short piece called uh, Little Things, and I'm going to read uh, a callback piece to that called Big Things. Well, I think that sounds wonderfully fantastic and fantastically wonderful. So why don't, why don't we hear that piece now? All right. Here I am, closing the show. Fantastic. Wonderful. Big things. There was a small glass jar with a small cork stopper sitting on the shelf by the bed. Inside, twenty-odd rolls of coloured paper, each cinched with a tiny gold ring. The first time you met my parents, one would have said, if the ring had been removed and the paper unrolled. All the time I've spent missing you, another would have said. The penmanship would have been familiar and all that. Familiar swoops of subvisibly moving ink atoms on a subvisibly moving nothingness of paper. You're in a restaurant patio in Yankin in rainy season. The downpour has turned to drizzle and drizzled itself out. Puddles map inverse archipelagos on the uneven cement floor, subvisibly moving water still as glass except for the drips. 
The Burmese men on the adjacent table are filling the patio with clouds of strawberry-scented smoke. Subvisibly moving particles, moving visibly up your nose. You are in your memories, in each one. Standing there ankle-deep, solid as tea in a cup on the table. You are kicking through puddles, holding your mum's hand. You are walking down a dozen streets you may have walked before. We both get jealous sometimes, don't we? You say to Yoko. Yes, sometimes, she says. It's what we get for being so guapo and guapa, you say, to draw a laugh. You drew several laughs in that first conversation, in the hostel in Chiang Mai, when her head was still bald from the temple and her eyebrows just coming back. You've relived that meeting a hundred times, a million, the pair of you, ankle deep. It was rainy season then too. It rained on your second night together. As you grabbed her hand and ran her across the road by the Taphe gate, drawing laughter, kicking through the puddles, just getting to know one of the only ones you will ever truly know. You kicked through puddles, you talked in the rain. The rain was Thailand light, not Yangon heavy. It beaded on the fuzz of her buzzed head. It haloed the streetlights as it fell, making suns of the bulbs. Finito. <laughs>